James Madison, the fourth president of the United States, often spoke about preventing the tyranny of the majority. Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, expressed this concept of democracy in 1801 in his first inaugural address. He said, all will bear in mind this sacred principle that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable. That the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect and to violate would be oppression. The Constitution aims to protect individual liberties. It is meant to protect certain rights despite public opinion. It is meant to protect all the people, including and especially the weak and vulnerable. A young healthy woman is forcibly sterilized by her government in this episode of Lockdown Law. This is the case of Buck v. Bell, decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1927. Carrie Elizabeth Buck was born on July 3, 1906, in Charlottesville, Virginia. After she was born, she was placed with foster parents John and Alice Dobbs. Buck attended public school only until the sixth grade. At that time, her foster parents removed her from school to help them with housework. At 17 years old, Buck became pregnant. And there are many horrendous parts to her story. Uh, One in particular is that there are reports that this pregnancy was not voluntary and that someone close to her foster parents committed this criminal act. The child was born out of wedlock which was a big deal back in the 1920s. On January 23rd, 1924, her own foster parents had her committed to the Virginia colony for the feeble-minded. Now, what is feeble-minded? Well, back then it had a very broad definition and included not only those with low IQ, but women who were labeled promiscuous. And if you had a child out of wedlock, you could definitely... be considered promiscuous back then. On March 28, 1924, Buck gave birth to her daughter Vivian. Since she had been declared mentally incompetent to raise her child, her foster parents adopted Vivian. In another horrific turn in this case is the fact that Vivian ended up dying at the age of eight, apparently from measles or a measles-related infection. During this time, during the 1920s, the eugenics movement was popular in the United States, and basically it was a movement to sterilize the undesirables in our society. So who was John Bell in the case of Carrie Buck versus Bell? 
Well, John Bell was a prominent eugenist and physician in Virginia. He was a member of the American Medical Association, and he advocated the forced sterilization of people to be incompetent. He was appointed superintendent of the state colony for epileptics and feeble-minded in Lynchburg, Virginia. Carrie Elizabeth Buck, a patient at the colony, had been selected for the test case, and Bell performed the operation on Buck himself. So the procedural history of the case is as follows. John Bell issued an order for the sterilization of Buck. Buck appealed, to the Buck appealed the case to the Circuit Court of Amherst County, which sustained the decision of the board. The case then moved to the Supreme Court of Appeals of Virginia. The appellate court sustained the sterilization law, and it then went to the United States Supreme Court. Buck contended that the Due Process Clause guarantees all adults the right to procreate, which was being violated. They also made the argument that the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment was being violated since not all similarly situated people were being treated the same. The sterilization law was only for the feeble-minded at certain state institutions and made no mention of other state institutions or those who were not in an institution at all. But unfortunately, on May 2nd, 1927, in an 8 to 1 decision, the court accepted that Buck, her mother, and her daughter were feeble-minded and promiscuous, and that it was in the state's interest to have her sterilized. This ruling legitimized Virginia's sterilization procedures until they were repealed in 1974. That's right. They were not appealed until 1974. That just amazes me. The ruling was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., and argued that the interest of public welfare outweighed the interest of individuals and their bodily integrity. Holmes concluded his argument by declaring that three generations of imbeciles are enough. The sole dissenter in the court, Justice Pierce Butler, was a devout Catholic. Carrie Buck was operated upon by Bell himself, as mentioned earlier. And she was later paroled from the institution as a domestic worker to a family in Bland, Virginia. She was an avid reader until her death in 1983. Historian Paul Lombardo argued in 1985 that Buck was not feeble-minded at all, but that she had been put away to hide the criminal offense perpetuated by the nephew of her adoptive mother, who was the father. He also asserted that Buck's lawyer, Irving Whitehead, poorly argued, that, argued her case, failed to call important witnesses, and was remarked by commentators to often not know what side he was on. It is now thought that this was not because of incompetence, but deliberate, 
Whitehead had close connections to the Council for the Institution, and Whitehead was a member of the governing board of the state institution in which Buck resided and had personally authorized sterilization requests and was a strong supporter of eugenic sterilization. Talk about a bad lawyer, you know, conflict of interest. In order to ensure that the family could not reproduce, Carrie Buck's sister Doris was also sterilized when she was hospitalized for appendicitis. Although she was never informed of this sterilization, she later married and she and her husband attempted to have children. She did not discover the reason for their lack of success until 1980. Reporters and researchers who visited Buck later in life claimed she was a woman of normal intelligence, and later in life she expressed regret that she had not been able to have additional children. Buck died in a nursing home in 1983. She was buried in Charlottesville near her only child, Vivian, who had died at age eight. As I mentioned, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the 8 to 1 majority opinion upholding the sterilization of Carrie Buck with the often quoted and infamous phrase, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Again, Buck, her mother, and daughter were all classified as feeble-minded. During the time between the two cases, the eugenics movement declined, certainly in large part, to seeing the horrors of its implement, implementation in Nazi Germany. This case is important for several different reasons. One, it warns not to always blindly follow public opinion. Just because the majority of people agree with something doesn't always make it right. Remember the quote by Madison, beware of the tyranny of the majority. Second, the horror of this case lays the foundation for Skinner versus Oklahoma, which again, gave a constitutional right to procreation as a fundamental right. What is a fundamental right? That word is thrown around so much, so it's really important to understand its meaning. So a fundamental rights, fundamental rights are a group of rights that have been recognized by the Supreme Court as requiring a high degree of protection from government encroachment. 
These rights are specifically identified in the Constitution, which is interesting because the actual text of the Constitution doesn't contain a whole lot of individual rights. Most are found in the Bill of Rights, which are the first 10 amendments. And have, additional rights have been found under the Due Process Clause, either of the 5th or 14th Amendment. Laws encroaching on a fundamental right generally must pass strict scrutiny to be upheld as constitutional. Examples of fundamental rights not specifically listed in the Constitution include marriage, privacy, contraception, interstate travel, procreation, custody of one's child or children, and voting. So again, there are some basic fundamental rights in the Constitution, mainly in the Bill of Rights, but the courts have also created other fundamental rights by case law, and the Skinner versus Oklahoma case was the one that stated that you have a fundamental right to procreation. And remember, not everything is a fundamental right. You'd be surprised. For example, in San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez, which was decided in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court held that the right to education is not a fundamental right. Another fascinating part of the Buck versus Bell case to me is the fact that, I mean, you have this Supreme Court Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes. He served until he was 90 years old. He's responsible for shaping American jurisprudence. He's considered one of the brightest legal minds, and he issues this horrible decision. And then if you remember episode one, the Korematsu case, where President FDR forcibly removed Japanese-American citizens from their homes, took their property, relocated them far from their homes, and locked them in internment camps just because we were at war with Japan. There was never one Japanese-American citizen convicted of treason, and there was no evidence that Korematsu was ever disloyal. Also, FDR never rounded up the Germans or Italians, and we also fought against them in World War II. And it's just so surprising because FDR was the longest serving president. He led us to victory in World War II. He helped create Social Security, retirement, which helps our seniors. 
uh, Medicare, health insurance for our seniors. And as part of the Social Security Acts, we've created Social Security Disability, which is a program that helps our disabled citizens. And how could this great American president do this to the Japanese American citizens? I mean, you have FDR and Oliver Wendell Holmes looking terrible in these two cases. And I guess the lesson learned is that no one is infallible. Another important lesson learned from Buck v. Bell is how we need to protect the vulnerable. The case demonstrates that the government is powerful and has the resources and means to accomplish objectives. However, the Constitution is set up to protect individual rights against the government. For example, you look at how our criminal law system should work. I understand the reality may be different at times, but in theory, if you look at the Constitution, it's, it is set up really to protect defendants against the government. The burden of proof on the government is very high, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's been the Brady Rule, which basically, uh, this was a case of Brady versus Maryland, which states that if the government comes across any evidence favorable to the accused, the prosecution must disclose that to the defense. You also have the right to remain silent, the right to a speedy trial, no cruel and unusual punishment, uh, right to an attorney um, if you can't afford one. So we must always remember the Constitution really is set up to, pr to protect individual liberties. Okay, so most people want to talk about what's going on today. They're not as fascinated with history as I am. So let's talk about the current cases. I've come across two interesting stories. One is a situation involving a hair salon owner in Oregon. And the other is a restaurant owner in California. Here's clip one involving the hair salon owner in Oregon. I want the public to understand what's happening to me by the government. From outside her salon in Salem, Lindsey Graham fires back at Oregon OSHA, the state agency that fined her $14,000. I'm being threatened and intimidated and bullied daily by the government. And I'm very sad that this is the world that we live in. The hefty fine levied against Graham comes more than a week after she reopened her business, Glamour Salon, defying the governor's orders and ignoring a warning from OSHA. And I've never expected such a violent, aggressive, vindictive thing could ever have been done to me or my family because I'm trying to earn a living, because I'm trying to work. We still need confirmation that she has received uh, the citation. Aaron Corvin is a spokesperson for Organ OSHA. He says Glamour Salon isn't the only business OSHA is tracking, not by a long shot. Since early March, when our world was turned upside down, the agency has received more than 4,000 complaints about different businesses. Most employers are either endeavoring to comply or are complying. Those that aren't, Corvin says, are subject to fines and citations. Take, for instance, National Frozen Foods in Albany. We actually did issue a citation. Um, it had to do with a failure to uh, implement physical distancing practices on their packaging line. Then there's Glamour Salon in Salem. Owner Lindsey Graham fined thousands of dollars for operating her business. She's been ordered to pay up and close up shop within the next several days. Will she is the question.
I'm vowing to stay open as long as I can until the government basically tries to take my entire career, something I've worked 15 years for, out from underneath me. All right, Lindsey Graham says she has lawyered up and plans to fight this whole thing in court. She expects a tough battle. And making matters even worse, she says in addition to OSHA, other state agencies are coming after her, including Child Protective Services. I'm Mike Benner for KGW News. The next clip involves a restaurant owner in California. A restaurant in Carmel refusing to stop serving dine-in customers. Uh, the Tuck Box, located on Dolores Street, has been warned several times to close down its dining room. KPI X5's Len Ramirez asks the owner why he's not backing down. The owner of the Tuck Box restaurant cited financial reasons for reopening his restaurant. He has been cited and fined, but says he will stay open. Meantime, the customers keep coming. A full patio, a full dining room, and a line out the door for the Tuck Box restaurant in Carmel. There's also no social distancing and no masks being worn by servers or customers, all of it in violation of Monterey County's health orders. I've had it. So have all my customers. So is the state of California. Let's open up. Owner That's Jeffrey Latout did open up all on his own, saying he lost $60,000 in the month and a half he was closed. He contends the risk is low. There have been 317 COVID-19 cases in Monterey County with six deaths. This is no longer sound medical practice. It's all about politics. I'm not going to play. So they're way beyond their legal purview here. There's no crisis. His supporters, some from outside the area, have been coming to defiantly dine in. Everybody's feeling pretty terrible about being locked in and and we kind of want to rebel. Now Carmel Police and the Monterey County District Attorney's Office are cracking down. Latout has been fined $1,000 for violating the order and could be put in jail. If we need to take additional actions to secure compliance, then... Uh, We'll do that. Latout could also face fines of $2,500 for each sit-down meal he has served for violating the state's unfair competition law. Other restaurants up and down the street are still serving takeout meals only. All the people in there sitting next to each other, I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. You know, this is a pandemic. If it's just somebody that's entitled and feels that they should get what they want because they want it now. The restaurant has become a battleground between those who disagree with the health orders. Haven't we reached the curve? And those who think what the restaurant is doing is dangerous. The Trump box is open. Have a Corona with breakfast and get a free body bag. In Carmel, Len Ramitas, KPIX 5. I will try to follow up on these two cases and get more background information, facts, and procedural history in a future episode. In that last clip, you got some differing opinions, which is important. Listen, these are tough times, managing public health versus individual freedom and rights. And the real purpose of this podcast is to educate you, to educate us, including myself, in doing research for this podcast so that we can better articulate our positions, whatever they may be. This is a great country, and I'm still very optimistic about our future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lockdown Law. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast 
are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.